Well, I want to just conclude the series I've been doing on shame. Uh, the blame game, sorry. The blame game. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the blame game. How many are much more aware of people blaming? Man, isn't it, isn't it everywhere? It's not my fault. It's not my fault. Someone else. And someone else did it. It's someone else responsible to fix it. It's always out there. Someone's, uh, someone else's fault. It's the people. It's the circumstances. It's where I've come from. It's my family. It's the government. It's New Zealand. It's the world. Whatever it is. It's always out there. If it's out there, you can't do anything. But if you actually own up, you can actually do something if you take ownership. And uh, in this uh, next season in the year, we're going to be looking uh, at uh, what it means to be apostolic people. And you'll find to be an apostolic person means you have taken a hold in your heart that you have an assignment from God and you will assume responsibility to fulfill your assignment in the community. So if you buy into the blame game, you can never be what God called you to be. You have to recognize that buying into the blame game, by that I mean that we're blaming someone else for problems and, and believing someone else is going to have to fix it up. When you buy into that, you remain a victim, you remain powerless, you cannot be part of the answer that God wants us to be. We have to absolutely reject the blame game in every form and say, I am going to be part of the answer. I'm going to be part of the solution. So what I want to do today is I want to share another aspect of the blame game. I'm going to go back to see where it started. And isn't it amazing? It started when someone failed. Isn't that interesting? The blame game, passing the buck. It's what is called pass the buck. You know, I liked it with Barack Obama. I like it when he said, well, the buck stops here. I like that. That's good leadership. Hey? And that's, that's the indications of a man who's, who's going to do something about things. I like that. He said, well, he said something went wrong. He said, it's my responsibility. I'll work on it to make it right. That's good, good stuff. That's a man who's not playing victim. It's a man who stood up and said, you're going to be part of the solution. You want to see these kinds of things. It's like a, a new thing happening instead of blaming everyone else for the problem. So we're going to look at the blame game. And what I want to look at today is I want to look at dealing with failure. Is there anyone here who hasn't failed? I'd just like to meet them and shake their hand. It'd be quite nice, actually. Sort of was hoping I might find someone here. Often in churches, there's sort of this thing that you can't fail because you're Christian or something. Where'd they get that idea? I just ask you, didn't fail? Everyone here failed, huh? including me. See, everyone fails. Everyone makes mistakes. The Bible says the steps of a good man, and we're good man and woman because God has made us good. Our goodness is because God has put goodness in it. He's in us. See, so the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Though we fall, though we fall. Well, he won't stay down and get up because the Lord lifts him up. I like that. So it doesn't matter how much you fall. If you reach out to God, he'll get you back up again. So failure for a Christian well, that's just a temporary inconvenience and a great opportunity to learn. But there's one thing sure, you can rely on God to get you back up again. Hey? Says the righteous man, though he falls seven, seven times. In other words, he keeps falling over, God will lift him up again. God always loves to lift people up again. And it's interesting that when you get to, into a church environment, there's this whole fear of failing seems to come around people. And not only that, there's a, uh, with it a, a religious, pharisaical spirit that judges people for failing as though we hadn't failed. I don't know, but when we just took communion there, I, my understanding of communion is there ain't no way to get into heaven until you bow the knee and admit you failed. The rich man, the poor man, the wealthy man, well, no matter who they are, we all come into heaven the same way. You bow the knee to Jesus Christ and you admit 
I failed. <laughs> yes, you have to admit something. You've got to own up and that someone took responsibility for the failure. And when you acknowledge your failure and reach out and take responsibility to believe, then what will happen is God can lift you up and make you change. So that's a great thing to know. Always need to be reminded in church, everyone here makes mistakes, fails, does things wrong and imperfectly every day. Well, that's not something to be worried about, is it? See? Because we do a lot of good things as well. Anyway, let's go into this. I want to show you something. What I love about the Bible is it's full of glorious mistakes and failures. Absolute major mistakes. Look at this in Genesis chapter 7, verse 13. Let's see where the blame game started. And you notice in verse uh, 7 to 13, the eyes of them both were open. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. That's Adam and Eve. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. So they hid themselves. Isn't it interesting when you know something's wrong, you want to avoid church, avoid fellowship, avoid meetings, anything to avoid feeling uncomfortable and being reminded you've got something bad going on in your life. People think, well, I, the only way I can come to God is if I get my life right. Well, that's ridiculous. You come to God because your life isn't right. And He accepts you like you are and says, I'll help you change. You've got to get a handle on this kind of stuff, see? And so notice here, they went and they hid. So hiding, when people are hiding, it means they've got something to be hiding about. They're guilty and they failed. And it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God and they hid themselves. And, and the Lord called Adam and said, hey, where are you? I like this. God, God talks real simple. Notice he's, what he said, where are you? Who told you? Did you eat the fruit of the tree? He just nailed him with three questions. God asked questions. I mean, he knows the answers. He's about to nail you. And so what did God say? He said, well, he said, hey, where are you? He said, well, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. Who told you were naked? Did you eat the fruit of the tree? Ah, ah. Now, look at this. This is classic. You've got to get this line here. And, he sa- and this is what the man said. I love this line. The woman. Okay. Pass the blame and meet. Now, I love this line. The, the first is the woman. The woman. See? The woman who you gave to be with me. None of my, none of my ideas. All your idea, you know. You gave her to me to be with me. Now, what a nuisance that's turned out to be. See? He hasn't, he's conveniently overlooked all the wonderful evenings they had together. Forgotten all about that. No, no, no. You, uh, your idea. I never thought a woman. I named animals, but I didn't think a woman. You thought up woman. It's all your fault. Now, the problem is, of course, in doing that, he missed his opportunity to have a massive learning experience and grow. And we've all suffered because he did that. You want to really take a note that the moment you start blaming, you are disempowered and you reap consequences and you don't learn a thing. You don't have to repeat the same thing again. The moment you start blaming, you then notice when, when he blamed, God stopped talking. The moment you blame, you have absolved yourself from responsibilities. There's nothing left. Then you bear the pain. You face the consequences. So blame game is not a good thing. But notice that the blame thing emerged whenever there was failure. Now, one thing is absolutely, a couple of things certain in life. One of them is, well, they say death and taxes are certain in life, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely certain you'll die. Someone you're certain you'll die. You're also certain there's taxes. uh, But also certain there's failure. Failure is inevitable. Failure comes uh, to us 
day by day we have mistakes, things go wrong, things don't work out, things we tried didn't work out, and uh, we have some measures of success, and we also have failures. It's just part of being in this world. Things don't always work out. Notice what it says in 1 John 1.10. If we say we haven't sinned, if we say we have no failures, then we're lying. So when, you, when, you, when we cannot admit to ourselves that actually we do make mistakes, we do things wrong, and we do it regularly, we can't say that. The one that's being deceived is ourselves. No one else is being deceived by that. So you notice if we say that, then what we're doing is making God a liar, because he says everyone has sinned. So we have to realize that everyone fails sometime, but what you do from it can be a learning experience, or you can just keep repeating the same failure. And if you keep repeating the same failure, inevitably you weren't learning and you were blaming. And so we've got to not get into the blame game so we can actually deal with our mistakes honestly, because they're going to come. And uh, I, the Bible abounds in them. I, like, I love this. I, I like to look in the Bible, and the Bible's glorious, and it doesn't just tell you all the good things God did and the people He used. It tells you the terrible things that people did. It just gets all their mistakes out. Imagine being one of these great men in the Bible, and they not only the Bible recorded all your good stuff, it also records your absolutely magnificent failures. For thousands upon thousands of people in every generation to read about, so they could learn not to do what you did. Isn't that glorious? In 1 Corinthians 10 of the people of Israel, it said, everything that was written in verse 6 was written for our warning. In other words, 2 million people made uh, about 10 mistakes, and it was written down what happened to them so we didn't do the same thing. So mistakes are great opportunities to learn, and they're inevitable. So Abraham, Abraham's a wonderful man. Well, Abraham lied about his wife. He said, oh, it's my sister. He weaseled out, and, and in the end, he got into a whole heap of trouble. Isaac lied about his wife too, and we have Jacob. Well, he deceived his father. He, 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 when his father was old and blind, you know what Jacob did? He put on an animal skin, and he came near him and pretended to be his brother so he could get the blessing. He, he deceived his father. Poor blind old dad about to pass out of this life, and he goes up and deceives him gets him to put his hand on the skin that's on him. So he, he gets fooled into thinking that this must be Esau, the hairy one, instead of the lovely sweet boy that was mummy's boy, you know, soft hands and all that kind of stuff. See? So he, he said, what a thing to do, deceive his dad. Then what about Moses? Moses was a great man with plenty of uh, things going for him and a great call of God, and he murdered someone. Then got chased out of town, and there's a reward post to put on him, capture him dead or alive. He's a murderer. It's not a really good way to start your ministry, is it? And, and what about Rahab? You know, Rahab was, well, Rahab, uh, she was a prostitute. And then just think about that for a little bit. Not too long, but just think about that a little bit. <laughs> it's not a good way to start in the, in the things of God, is it? Rahab had a call of God on her life, but she had a, not a very nice start. I wonder if we'd make her even welcome here. Hey? Well, Jesus made a welcome. Bible makes a welcome. Well, think about this. Gideon. Well, well Gideon, made a, Gideon was full of fear. When God starts talking to him, he argues and argues and argues. He's so full of fear and hiding, and he has to get over and over these kind of signs and things. And uh, what about Barak? There's an iron there guy, Barak, in the Bible. And he was so lacking in courage, he asked a woman to give him direction what to do. It's true. And she said, okay, I will. Okay, I will. He says, and, and you won't get the glory and the honor because you didn't have the courage to stand up and lead properly. That's what the Bible says. 
You know, it's written down too, isn't that nice, eh? We can talk about it today, about that wimpy man. <laughs> he didn't get the honour, he went to someone else. Hey, think about that. What about Samson? Think of Samson, not the Samson, he's a good man. But think about Samson. When you think about Samson, you always think about Delilah. Isn't that right? And we think about what Samson did. Now, what, what an amazing failure. Goes there and stays a night with a prostitute, and then the enemy try to get him, and he tears the gates of the city off, and then he doesn't learn his lesson. He goes out and gets involved with this woman there, and ends up getting a haircut, an expensive haircut, and his eyes put out and messing around. I mean, what amazing failure. There you are, and you're just like a donkey just driving the grain out, you know? This is, this is a major failure. This is really messing your life up. Interesting, I know all these people. Oh, there's another Jephthah. Well, Jephthah had a great start, didn't he? His father went off and had sexual relationships with a prostitute. That's how he started off. So his whole life was a mistake starting off. No one wanted him. Everyone hated him. Drove him out of town as a reject. And, uh, and he, made, he, he didn't exactly do too well himself. He made some foolish, rash vows. It's all written in the Bible. All these people that made these glorious mistakes, magnificent failures, but most churches would write them off. Say, well, couldn't do anything with that person. Interesting, though, that the Bible lists each of those people I named as a man or woman of faith and does not record their failure in the New Testament at all. It just says, by faith, these people did great things. Now, did God overlook their failure? No, He didn't overlook their failure. But He looked above their failure and beyond their failure to what they were destined to be, and his focus was on their destiny, not their failures. There's no mention of Delilah in the New Testament. Yet when you think Samson, you always think Delilah. But the Holy Spirit ignores her completely. Doesn't even mention her in the chapter on faith. Doesn't mention any of these errors, these glaring errors. It doesn't mention them. Why? Because they're under the grace of God each of these people have found forgiveness. Each of these people have walked into the destiny. And God says, I really like these people because in their day, yeah, they had mistakes. Yeah, they made failures. And they were costly failures. But they're men and women of faith. And that's, that's, that's a biblical perspective, you see. So failures are never fatal for us. And we, we've got to see that God doesn't overlook our failures. In fact, actually, your failures have huge consequences. For example, Samson's failure, he lost his eyesight and then he ended up in change, lost his anointing, his eyesight, and his, his ministry. He ended up just grinding out like a donkey. But when he repented, God restored to him, not his eyesight, but restored to him his strength. And he was able to do one last great feat. So failure, if we handle it right, is never the end for us. It's just the beginning of a new season in our life. And if we don't get a grip on that, the problem is that within a church environment, people feel they can't fail and can't make mistakes. I hate being in an environment where I can't make mistakes, like I've got to be perfect or something. Perfectionism is an unrealistic expectation that everything will be perfect or there'll be no mistakes and everything will be done just right. And perfectionism is rooted in the fear of failure and in pride. And we don't need perfectionism. We want to do things well, but not perfectionism. Perfectionism is intolerant of people making mistakes, as though we didn't make them ourselves. Oh, that's very, that's very hurtful because it judges and makes it very difficult for anyone to rise up and move on. And the church is called to be a, an environment where everyone's encouraged to take risks. And with risks, there's going to be failures. 
God calls us as a people of faith to take some risks. And so when, when, when we take a risk, there's going to be some things go wrong, that's for sure. And the, the best way to fall out of your destiny is to just not take any risks at all. Play it safe. And you have a boring life, a religious life, and you cannot fulfill your destiny because your destiny requires faith. Without faith, you cannot please God, and faith is going to take some risks. And sometimes people really blew it on the way to taking risks. And you've got to learn how to deal with it. Isn't that true? So we don't want to be perfectionists, nor do we want to have a spirit of perfectionism in, a critical spirit that, that the moment people have made a mistake, they seize on it, pounce on it, and implicit in it is a judgment against the person. You are unacceptable because you failed. Rather than, and that implies I don't fail. The reality is all fail. It's just their one was visible and we all saw it. Yours wasn't. But God saw it and it's still very real. And so when we learn how to handle failure properly, we can come into a place of understanding the grace of God. The grace of God abounds where there's failure. Where sin abounds, failure abounds, grace even more abounds. So one thing's absolutely certain, if I find someone in a huge mess and there's a huge failures all around their life, Boy, the grace of God is far more abundant and it's able to come in and shift them out of it. But they've got to handle the failure right. And you and I can help people handle their failures or we can actually keep them locked in their failure. We can take the side of Jesus Christ who came to provide an answer for failures or we can take the side of the devil and be his advocate and speak accusations against failures. It's really it is. There's no middle ground. You are either uh, joined to the Savior who came to save people out of their failures, or you're joined to the devil who accuses people of their failures. There's no middle ground anywhere. And I want to always be connected to Jesus, giving hope that in the midst of failure, there's always grace, there's always a hope, there's always a future. You can always get up and get going again. Isn't that true? And that's why the church is to be a community of grace. The Bible says the law came by Moses. In other words, there's laws. Do this, or you didn't do it. That judgment came by the law. But it says grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So it doesn't mean that, uh, that people overlook, that we're to overlook failures and mistakes. Truth means we face them. But grace means there's an empowerment to get up out of it again. So you've got to hold the two together. You and I can be a great ministry of blessing to help people out of their failures, or we can actually hold them in them. And as a church community, we have to, if we're going to grow in our influence in the community, we have to step up in being able to handle our own personal failures and the failures of others around us and the failures of people in the community. Most times, the churches can do nothing else except criticize and complain what's going wrong. There's no solution in that. We need to actually understand that the answer is not to overlook it, but to come with a hope and with a message and with faith and with the possibility that something better could happen. People of vision and faith. So we have to learn to deal with failures. So how are we going to deal with failures? Let's have a look at one. Uh, um, there's one classic one. I love this glorious one of David's. Now, how many know King David was a man after the heart of God? Huh? You know, David was a man after the heart of God. A great man. So Jesus was called the son of David. So Jesus didn't mind being connected to David, the one who committed murder and adultery and blah, blah, blah. 
See, now, but because David was a man who sought the heart of God and got a vision for what he could become. But David made heaps of mistakes on the way, many mistakes. And the mistakes weren't little ones. When, when he made a mistake, you know, thousands of people died. How do you live with that at night time? That's a big mistake. You know, when he counted all the numbers of Israel and, uh, and broke the law in doing so, then there was judgment came on Israel and there were thousands died because he counted the soldiers. No wonder he had a heart that was very repentant, very sorry open to the Lord. In, in, one, Corinthians, in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, the Bible tells us this is, a, this is a glorious, spectacular failure. This is where he really wanted to do something public and something great and something, you know, be really just a significant keynote of his, of his being made the king. Because under Saul's uh, reign, the ark of God, there was no presence of God, there was no ark of God. So what happened was under Saul's reign, uh, there was no move of God. So his desire was to bring back the ark of God. So he got the whole country together. He got the trumpeters, he got the musicians, he got everything all out. And they put the cart on, a, on, a, on an ox and uh, they put the ark on, an, on, a, on a cart drawn by oxen. And they went down the road and everyone is out. He's got, talk about public. This, is, this failure was not a hidden failure. And they're going there down the road and, and the trumpets are playing and everything. And David's dancing and shouting and this is all a new thing. And then in the middle of it, the, uh, the, the oxen stumble, someone touches it, and the guy is smitten dead. Just like that. I don't, I'd love to see what happened, you know, whether, whether a, uh, a bolt of lightning came down and fried him on the spot. <laughs> Everyone, look at that thing. Now, who's going to get the blame for messing this up? David. Now, how do you overcome that? It says David was very angry. But he's looked forward to this. He's organized the whole nation to do this public thing and bringing the ark back. And then God smites the man down right in the middle of it and ruins the whole parade. And everyone goes skulking back to their home. And instead of it being a great thing, the ark didn't even quite make it to Jerusalem. It's now stuck in someone's house. A total major public spectacle failure. So what did David do? Well, you couldn't hide it because it was all public. But he wasn't going to be deterred by it. What he did was he went and he sought the Lord. And it tells us in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 that God showed him where he went wrong. And he re-went and reset the whole thing up again. Now you can imagine the anticipation of that day. He's got the trumpeters out. He's got everyone out. He's got everything going again. And there it is. But he said this. We made a mistake. We didn't do it God's way last time. We were trying our best and we meant well, but we just didn't do it right. He said, God, show me what to do. And this time it was a success. So he learned from his failure. But what a glorious failure. What a glorious failure. Total failure in front of the whole country. Don't you just love that? Not a little quiet one somewhere that you can hide, you know. But first you don't succeed, destroy all evidence you tried, you know. He learned from his experience. So how are we going to deal with failure? So failures are either a stepping stone to grow or they're, they're going to really wound you. And then it'll make you more and more reluctant to step out. So here's a few simple keys for doing. Number one. You need to own the failure. If you've made a mistake, had a failure in your life, something's gone wrong, you just have to take ownership of it. That's completely the opposite of blame shifting. Blaming, we're trying to find someone else to blame for our mistake. The Bible says if we cover, if we cover our sin or mistakes or failures, we will not prosper. Now, what's going on in many lives here is that there's a covering of things that are wrong. When you cover things that are wrong, Notice you can't progress, you can't advance, you can't go forward. If you confess them, 
and then turn away from them. You always experience mercy and the grace of God to get you growing. But the first step is to stop covering and, and stop concealing and actually face it. And uh, so we've got to call it what it is. You've got to say, I failed. I messed up. <laughs> really? I messed up. That's a hard thing to say. You know what it's hard for men to say? They have a choking fit when they try and say, I was wrong. I was wrong. It's very hard for a man to say that. You just wait and see if you next hear a man say, I was wrong. Very hard to say it. It's pride, of course. But you have to admit it. I, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I got it wrong. Uh, I failed. I did it wrong. If you just own up. Once you said, I made a mistake, you got ownership. Now you can do something fix it up. But, uh, and, so, and notice that uh, when, when Saul it makes a mistake, uh, twice he does the same thing. Oh, 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 well, oh, you, the circumstances, all these Philistines were gathered against me. And, uh, and, uh, and the people were all leaving. And you didn't come in the time. Notice, no, no responsibility for doing something wrong. And so he said, and the prophet said, you've really, you've really done foolishly. You read it in, in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And he says, you could have been the king, but now you're going to lose your kingdom because you can't handle being responsible. Next time he did something silly, he got another chance. He got a second chance. Next time he did the same thing. Still, still did it wrong, but blamed everyone else. And then when it came to actually saying, I've sinned and made a mistake, he wasn't very sincere. He just said, uh, listen, by the way, can you just stand with me when we're doing the offering so everyone sees everything's okay between us? His whole manner about it is, I just want to look good. There was no ownership of the failure, whereas David always owned his failures. He just came straight up and said, man, I really blew it. I'm sorry. So we don't have to... F so the thing is, humility means you're just actually willing to own up. I made the mistake. It was wrong. I did wrong. I spoke wrong. And I'm going to own it. Now, if I own it, I got the power to change it and the power to learn from it. If I blame, I can't do anything. Second thing, you need to evaluate your, your failure. You need to have a look at it. What actually did I do wrong? Where did it go wrong? And uh, usually one of the things I look at is, well, how I feel. And sometimes you feel really ashamed. Sometimes you feel really guilty. Sometimes you really feel uh, like discouraged and disheartened. Sometimes you, you feel like uh, you're, you're very lacking in skill and ability. You have all kinds of feelings go on when you fail. But if you identify the feelings, you can often understand what you really believe about failure in your heart. And so while we all will accept in the church meeting that God forgives sin, actually we wrestle with our personal struggles because we believe something else. And so it helps just to identify what you feel when you fail because what, what is it, what's going on in my heart? And then how do I respond normally when my failure is obvious? How do I respond? Now this is an interesting one when you ask. You see, so when you look at it, you see Adam just covered it up. Uzziah, he, he made a mistake. He just got angry and bullied everyone. And, uh, and there's all kinds of other things. Elijah, well, Elijah, he just withdrew, got depressed, withdrew, and hid in the cave. Uh, Moses, he just ran away. Uh, all kinds of things that people did. Peter, Peter wept bitterly, just had a great howly back. He went out and cried. So all of these are things. Uh, it's interesting in the Bible. It tells you what they did when they failed. And then, of course, there's Judas who went out and hanged himself. And you're not encouraged to repeat his failure. By any means, <laughs> but permanent, wasn't it? So, but people, but what do you do? What what do you do when you've made a mistake or done something wrong? Do you cover it and conceal it? Try and hide it, minimize it, blame, shift, deny. What do you do when something's gone wrong? Or are you just honest and say, oh, "I really messed that up." 
And it's so hard for Christians to say, I really messed that up. But, you know, if we could just say, I really messed that up, then, you know, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Though he fall, the Lord will uphold him. So now I've owned up. At least now I've got God on my side to help me. But if I won't own up, then God's not on my side to help me. He's just going to let me experience some bad consequences now and, and get more, very embarrassed. And uh, so, we've got to just, so what is it you do? What do you do when something goes wrong? Someone points it out, you get really defensive and angry and react and try and shut it down or blame or minimize. Whatever. What do you do? Well, it tells you something about yourself. So just have a think what you do next time someone points out something wrong. Evaluate what you felt and what you did. And then you'll see what's going on in your life, whether you are growing and able to take on greater challenges of faith. Because if people won't, if we won't take ownership of where we did go wrong, we fail to learn, and learning is God's goal for us. He has got the remarkable ability to take any situation we've been through and use it to get us where he wants us to get. That's the amazing thing about God. Doesn't matter how you blew it, matter what went wrong, God can take your mistake and failure. Yes, you may have pain and some inconvenience and some discomfort and some reaping for many, many years, but he can still turn it around and use it to get you where he always wanted you to go. That's the one wonderful thing about him. But he can only do it if you'll come clean, admit it, and bring it out in the open. And uh, we have to do that. So what do you do? Uh, and then the thing is, you've got to learn from your failure. What can I learn about myself and what can I learn? Uh, so w- what did I go wrong? You know, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? What, what can I learn from it? What could I do better? You know, where have I messed up? I wonder why I messed up. Why did I do that? Do I do that all the time? You just have to start to ask some things about it. What can I learn? And you'd be surprised what you can learn if you think about where you went wrong. And surprised the things you can learn. The Bible's very clear. Proverbs 24 tells us this man looked and he saw this guy who'd made mistakes. And he said, I looked and I observed and I learned. So we can learn from others' failures. We can learn from our own. So the Bible, for example, is full of people who failed. Why don't you go find out how and why they failed so you don't make the same mistakes? Learn from them. Another thing we need to do with fathers, we need to actually receive forgiveness. Proverbs 28, again, it tells us in verse 18, if we confess and forsake, then we shall find or receive mercy. So we need to learn to receive forgiveness. And the problem to receive forgiveness, it starts off, you've got to actually come up front and talk about your problem to God. You've got to talk to Him. <laughs> Most people, about the best they come is, I'm sorry, God. Well, that's a start. But you know, it's helpful if you actually talk about what you're sorry about. Most people, they say, oh, I'm sorry. What they really mean is, blow, I got caught out. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's all they mean. I'm sorry. That's why they weep. I'm sorry. Yeah, we're all sorry too. But it doesn't mean to say, you know, that this is going to be a change. So really, it is, I've really done wrong. This is what I would did wrong. And this is how grieved you must be. And I so grieve that I have injured our relationship by what I did. That's more like it. Because true sorrow not only takes responsibility for the event or the thing that happened, but acknowledges the grief and damage to the relationship. And as soon as you acknowledge damage to the relationship, you're positioned then for forgiveness to come. When you, the Bible says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Oh, that means I can grieve him. Did you ever think when you sin, instead of just saying, sorry, God, actually starting to also take time to think, Holy Spirit, I took you to things I never really wanted you to go to. I've taken you places which have grieved and wounded you. Forgive me for grieving you. 
Holy Spirit, arise within me and fill me again with all your goodness and holiness. Become conscious of the Spirit of God and what we've done. He is grieved by some things. Get any idea? And of course, we have to talk to other people. Now, this is the hardest thing is how to make a good apology. Most people say, oh, sorry. And implied in that is, you've got to forgive me now. Well, I don't think I will. I don't feel you're sorry. And you see, true sorrow has repentance and it actually acknowledges that the relationship was damaged. If you don't acknowledge the relationship was damaged, you can never get proper forgiveness and release to take place. Well, suppose you did something, you damaged someone's property, or suppose you stole something from someone, then you come and admit you stole it and return it. Now, you actually haven't got back to where you were before because the person now doesn't trust you. Because they, they, they haven't heard in that apology what they were looking for. You hurt me. I trusted you and you let down my trust. You understand that a real good apology will always acknowledge how the person has been affected and, and, and be open for the person to be able to even share how it's affected them. So found often Christians, we want to apologize and smooth everything over without actually understanding how the person was hurt. So sometimes in working out with someone, you've got to stop and listen, find out what, how do they feel, how did this affect them. We don't want to do that. But when you do it, then the person feels like, now you've understood me. Then you now are apologizing, not for just the action, but for the taking the relationship for granted and wounding the person. And you can learn from that. Boy, you can really learn from that. It's looking good, isn't it? Eh? Well, I'm getting all quiet now. I think, well, here we are. The last one's very simple. We need to move on. We need to move on. I'm going to move on too much. Forget the failures. We're going to move on. And the moving on, you actually have to just progress with your life. And there's two ways you progress with your life because if you've learned from it, one is sometimes you just got to keep trying and persevere till we do get the breakthrough. And the second thing sometimes we need to do is admit, well, actually, that's the end of it. So if you've blown up a relationship and the relationship's over, well, it's over. Just grieve and have a funeral and grieve over it and goodbye, you know. We've got to get over it. See, sometimes you actually have to acknowledge that it'll never be the same again and you have to let go. And that's like having a funeral. There's something died. So I grieve over it, weep over it, but I can't do anything about it. Now I do move on with my life after I've grieved. So failures in life... Some are little, some are big, but they all have the same possibility of teaching us something. And it's better if we learn from our little failures than have massive ones and our life's in turmoil for a long time. How am I going to learn? First of all, just acknowledge it's there. Take ownership of the thing. <coughs> how does it affect me? How's I, how do I feel? How am I responding in this thing? What do I need to learn from God in this matter? What do I have to put right? And now, how can I move on? It's really quite simple. And, you know, that's the heart of the gospel that everyone is messed up and someone did something to get it right. His name is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He suffered immensely because the innocent always suffer when someone else sins. And so he suffered. He took the, the pain on the cross. So you and I, if we would repent and have a heart towards God to trust him, then he says, I've dismissed the matter. You got a fresh start. What a great thing. There may be some of you here need a fresh start in your life. Maybe you need a fresh start in your life. The first step to getting a fresh start in your life is to admit the failure and the mistakes you've made and to bring them to the Lord and say, Lord, will you forgive me? I really have done so many things that have messed up my life and others. Lord, I thank you on the cross you died. I receive your forgiveness today and receive your love and grace. And I think you're going to help me learn from this.